Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I am joined with my good friend, Steve. Say hello, Steve. Aloha. Aloha, Steve. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you. We're just running a two-man operation this time around, and we're here to talk about Lost in Space, the 1998 iteration of Lost in Space, specifically. (laughs) Indeed we are. Now, Steve, you probably know about Lost in Space more than me. I know that there was an older show, but I don't really know much else about what this property is. Uh, it was a network television show. It ran for three or four seasons in the mid to late 60s. It's about a family, the Robinsons, who get lost in space. Um, my understanding is, I, I believe Robinson Crusoe was the first story there. Uh, Robinson Crusoe is about a man who gets stranded on an island. Um, is that the same thing as like Swiss Family Robinson? Is that connected? Funnily enough, yeah. They, that, that story was later sort of used as the inspiration for Swiss Family Robinson. And then that was sort of in, used as inspiration again for the Robinson family lost in space. Um, that was the kind of the original starting point. The kernel that the show was based on is just a group of a family, mostly a family, lost in space. And they're Swiss? Together. Well, they're not Swiss in the television show, but... Okay. Uh, they're, they're just the family Robinson. <laughs> but the one before, they're, they're actually Swiss. They were actually Swiss people. And Swiss family Robinson, they were. Right. Yeah. And um, they get lost on an island as well. Good and, bobsledders, uh, Swiss. Right. Cool Runnings has taught me anything. Right. Is that the Swiss can fucking bobsled, man. It's true. I you like got to be more like the Swiss man. I like muesli. <laughs> um, and uh, so somebody at, at somewhere, I don't know if Universal... Uh, asked for this or if it was a spec script or what, but somebody somewhere came up with the idea of adapting it. And it, it it's kind of a lot of during the 90s. It's like, here's this thing remade for the 90s. And, oh, dude, uh, that was the whole decade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was very much like we're in the 90s now and everything else has got to catch up to us. I had a different talking point, but we're going to talk about this now too. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So things adapted in the 90s that were like an earlier thing. So they're, they're kind of doing that now, actually. So it's like the parents' generation, right? So the mm. parents in the 90s, they liked the Adams Family. Let's make the Adams Family a thing again. The difference, though, the 90s had a very specific gimmick. It was like, let's set it in the 90s. Yeah. Instead of making it from what it is. Right. And I'm kind of an interesting point of this particular movie. This movie went into production in 97, was released in April of 98. The original television show was set in 1997. I see. Um, uh, so, you know, and they had, they to had f- high hopes for 97. They did. They? Oh, God. I mean, my parents were both born in 51, and I remember both of them telling me that everyone thought by now we'd have flying cars. We're nowhere close. I know. <laughs> like, we ain't going to have flying cars. No. They were getting... I mean, were crashing into your fucking house. Right? Oh, my God. Yeah, people can barely handle being stuck on the ground. There's no <laughs> way. I don't want to be near most people in a flying car. Fuck no. <laughs> right? Unless it's like an extremely rigorous like license process. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically pilots. And you know what? They already get to fly cars. It's called, they're called planes. <laughs> 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 uh, but, um, Damn, good point. So yeah, um, New Line, New Line actually uh, wanted this to be a start of a, a franchise. They were expecting two, three films out of it, which is something you can tell when you get to the end of this. We'll talk about that when we get there. But uh, Fran, the, the studio spent 
I think it was either 70 or 80 million on this film in total. It was supposed to be the starting point for a franchise. And they actually had all the actors um, contracted for up to three films. Yeah, yeah, that I did know about. So they were going to do sequels from where this one ends off. And honestly, in watching it, I could see that. Like I could see them continuing the mission or continuing their journey. That was actually the whole point. The starting point from what I've read and heard over the years for the second one was supposed to be them finally getting to the place they were trying to get in this one. It's kind of sad, actually, that because they have to do so much setup in this movie. Yeah. That they never really get to be lost in space. <laughs> right. No, I, I agree. They they don't actually spend all that much time in this film being lost in space. And it, it feels like, you're right, like a setup. Uh, almost like the first in a comic book f- franchise where they've really got to spend a huge percentage of it just getting you to how this all happened to begin with. The lost in space cinematic universe. Right. Absolutely. Oh. They were also going to do a cartoon and comic books and like some spinoff novels for kids. I don't know if you remember the Scholastic Book Fair at school. but <laughs> Do I remember, remember the Scholastic Book Fair? I'd go right? in there with five bucks and I'd be like a fucking have my pimp cane out. Like, <laughs> Dude, there's a fantastic meme of Conor McGregor with $100 bills like falling down around. He's got a fur coat and gold jewelry on and it's like me. And he does his like walk, his like Conor right? McGregor walk. I'm going to screw it up, but the text of the meme is something like me with 20 bucks walking into a Scholastic book for book fair to get a Lamborghini poster and three choose your own adventure books. Yeah, <laughs> but they were gonna they were gonna do tie-ins with Scholastic. They were gonna be lost in space books that would have been sold at those book fairs and yeah. Damn. Well, we'll talk about like the audience for this movie a little bit more yeah. later on. I think because I have some kind of questions for you about that. Um, for now, the well, this was the plan question, so we can talk about it a little bit. Um, this movie is adapted from something else, and the most known thing it was adapted from, I guess, was the TV show. There were other sources. You said there was like a book and some other things, but the TV show was pretty prevalent. Yeah, right? they, it lasted a few years. Oh, yeah. Was, I mean, three or four seasons. It was one of those weird instances where it wasn't really on for that long, but it, it acquired a huge cult following afterward, kind of like the original Star Trek, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, the show had other inspirations, but the movie was an adaptation of specifically the television show, for sure. Now, what is your favorite adaptation from a TV show in terms of movies? Right? There's been a lot of them. We talked about yeah. like the 90s era. Most of them are terrible. A lot of them happened during the 90s. One of the big things during the 90s were adaptations from SNL skits. Um, there were a lot of those. Oh yeah, for a while. Wayne's um, World was the one that did really well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that that is Wayne's World. The first Wayne's World. I like the second one too. Is probably just barely my number two choice. Answering your question, um, most of the others were not very good. Coneheads was kind of funny, but my just barely edging out Wayne's World for me would be Adam's Family. Adam's Family's one of very very few adaptations of a television show that I really have ever liked but to your earlier point it was very much Adams family of the 90s this was not the TV show redone on a big screen this was 90s Adams family absolutely and <laughs> uh the Brady bunch really took that and ran with it because it yeah. was it was what if it was this 60s family in the 90s right? yeah yeah, absolutely. And they're all just kind of weirdly bent on maintaining that sort of late 60s, early 70s lifestyle. And they all went to Taft. Taft High School is what they used in the Brady Bunch movies. Oh, Taft? Really? Yeah. And Mira taught there. <laughs> oh, cool. I'm going to cut that out. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, to speak for my own self, I was thinking about this the other day. You know how every now and then there's a TV show and then they make a movie out of it? 
which is supposed to be like, oh man, they should make a movie like Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, right? that's not so, a good example. But yeah. <laughs> but but that's what I mean, like of that vein. I don't really know what it's called. But the one that continued the story and did it right, I think, using the same cast, same story, same everything, but then made a movie is Serenity from Firefly. You know, I hadn't even really considered that one because I was just thinking in terms of like stuff that was not extended from the show that was remade based on the show. But I would absolutely I'd agree with you in that regard. It was really well done. It was a nice way for them to cap it. But uh Absolutely, because the show was also unfinished and all the setup was done in the show. Yeah. If you watch the movie Avatar The Last Airbender, they have to cram everything in season one of the show into a two hour movie and it just does not work. No, no, there are very few instances where that can come off successfully. I, I I know I've fawned over it many times before, and it won't be a surprise that I bring it up, but I think one of the better examples of that is, is Akira. Um, one of the few even close to criticisms of that film is that the manga it's based on was much longer, and Katsuhiro Otomo had to take what would have been a miniseries worth of content and compress it down into something they could do in two hours, and a lot got edited out, but he did a an incredible job at it. Um, Steve, the anime elitist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, to your uh, your comments about keeping the original cast, just real quick, they wanted to get more of the people from the original Lost in Space television show involved in this remake. Um, ultimately, just about the only person who did appear was the voice of the robot. The guy who voiced the robot in this film is the same person who voiced Robbie the robot in the television show. Um, they wanted... The equivalent to Dr. Smith, Gary Oldman, they wanted that actor to appear as an older version of himself in this movie. This guy hadn't had a job worth talking about in 30 years. And his response to the studio was, no, I want the entire part or I'm not going to play it. And they were just like, fine, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's too good for a cameo. And then he did finally reappear in like a TV made for TV reboot movie of the original series. But that was it. Not the Netflix series. No, 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 no. Not the Netflix series. It was some kind of one-off, like, two-hour TV special. Have you watched the Netflix series Lost in Space? I haven't. No, I saw, like, the first third of the first season and then neglected to finish it. Not because I didn't like it necessarily. I just lost track of it. But I started watching uh, the first – I watched the first two episodes. Right. I did not like it at all. Really? But I had just come off Battlestar Galactica. Which is a really exceptionally good sci-fi TV series where they're lost in space. That is true. And then, all right, so here's the big blasphemy moment that I'm only going to admit to because you're the only other person in the room and I'm confident you won't try to beat me up. Um, I really loved Battlestar when it ran. I really, really loved it. I watched the entire thing, starting with the miniseries, liked every episode of it, recommended it to people. I still think it's good. But I don't think it's aged that well. I rewatched the first two seasons of it, and I'm just like, eh, this feels a lot cheaper than I remember it being. I was into it, man. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Through and through. But, you know, I had the first-timer perspective. Oh, you had not seen it before? I had not seen it before. Okay, you know what? Maybe that's the critical difference. Because, again, the first time I watched it through, I loved it. So, I don't know. I don't know. They are lost in space, just like... The Family Robinson is Lost in Space in this 1998 film directed by Stephen Hopkins, a man who has directed a few things here and there, namely Predator 2. (laughs) It's true. Which was also set in 1997. (laughs) What is it with this guy in 1997? Uh, It's a good year. It was all right. (laughs) I was having fun. (laughs) I was doing okay in 97, I'll tell you that. (laughs) 
He directed one of the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Five. Five, the dream child. Oh, God, that was a really bad one. That's one I mix up with Freddy's Dead a lot, but Freddy's Dead is the funnier one. That's I mean- the, That's the one with the N- right. Nintendo. Oh, yeah. Give the how- power glove. Oh, that's right. The power glove scene. I loved that. <laughs> Given how bad most of those movies are, to have the one that's usually regarded as being among the worst is really bad. Like, it's, yeah. it's not good. I mean, it's a, it's got a dedicated fan base, that franchise, but I, I just like the good one. I like three and uh, some of one. I like one. Yeah, one's still my favorite of those. I'm kind of the reverse of that with... Um, uh, Friday the 13th, I like the second one the best. Mm. But I think partly just because once you know what the twist at the end of the first one is, it kind of loses its impact. So, I guess it's like Sleepaway Camp in that way. Like, Sleepaway <laughs> Camp is so terrible and so good at the same time. It's like a spoof of itself. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> 80s, late 80s slasher films were like some of my favorites. I grew up watching those. Ugh. Uh, as a child should. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. My mother loved it when she caught me watching those. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about this 1998 film, Lost in Space. Um, one sort of interesting note that I guess is worth mentioning at the top. This movie didn't come out until April 3rd of 98. Titanic had come out in like November of 97. But it was such a megalith at the box office. They were actually, the studio executives were actually calling it the iceberg. That it just remained in the number one spot, literally, all the way into April of 98. It was still in the number one spot. This movie didn't actually perform that well at the box office compared to what they were hoping for it. Um, made something like $136 million internationally on like an $80 million budget. But uh, it did well enough. That on April 3rd, when it came out, or within a few days thereof, it became the number one grossing film in the country and was the first thing to have knocked Titanic out of the number one spot. It's kind of a weird, for this film to have been what, what just by accident, by happenstance, we would knocked out Titanic. Damn. <laughs> yeah, Titanic was insane. I, was. I remember the Titanic hype and people were re-watching this multiple times over. Oh, like yeah. It, like it was like Gone with the Wind or something. It was People were... The person I went to see it with in the theaters, I didn't see it until it had been out a week or so. The person who I went to see it with had already seen it at least once, if not twice, when he went with me. I was like, why are you doing this? But, you know, I've done it with Star Wars movies, so whatever. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't see Titanic twice in theaters, Steve? I did not. I watched it. I've watched it multiple times since it was out. It was an incredible production. But uh, no, once in theaters was okay. James Cameron. If they if they re-release it again, not in 3D, I might go back and see it another time. I'd like to see it in Atmos. That'd be cool. I'd be willing to see it and do a podcast on it. Yeah. <laughs> so Lost in Space, right? We got the Space Force in <laughs> 2058. That's kind of where this film opens up, right? So like the military arm of, I guess, the United States or maybe the world, I don't know, is the Space Force. Now, I, I can't help but feel that the, the beginning action scene of this was an afterthought. Like, it was maybe added later. I don't know that for sure, but I feel like it was added in there to give this movie an action pacing, where it starts off with an action scene, yeah. and then at about 20 minutes in, they get to the next action scene, which seems to be pretty standard for action movies, I think. Yeah, I... I, I... I'm not sure if I feel quite so much like it was an afterthought, but I agree with you completely about the rest of it. It's clearly just so like, we here, let's throw them right into the action, which is a technique that I, I do sometimes like, um, if it's done well. 
in this particular case, I don't really understand why his character needed to be the first one we met. Like, he's um, among the main characters, he's arguably not as important as some of the others. And, of course, you're talking about Major Don West, played by Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc. No, okay, so here's here's a weird little side note. He was filming episodes of Friends consecutively with this and was flying back and forth between the two sets in order to accommodate both schedules, which is an impressive thing. That's fucking exhausting. And, and good for him for being able to pull off either performance. But... Not only that, but apparently they offered this part to his friend's castmate, Matthew Perry, first. And I just can't imagine why. Under Matthew it, Perry? I mean, I thought Matt LeBlanc was Matt, enough of a stretch. Yeah, right, exactly. And at least LeBlanc is kind of the, the – like, I can see why women would find him attractive and he's a big kind of athletic-looking dude. He was pretty but, buff in this role, yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's one part where the Lacey Chabert's character, the younger daughter, th- says she thinks he's cute, and w- which I could see, you know, a teenage girl thinking he was cute, but like, with, you put Perry in that position, I don't buy any of it. He's not athletic, he's not big, he doesn't have the looks, he doesn't come off like a jock or a pilot, like, why, why on earth would you have ever... <laughs> I feel like the studio executives are trying to cast this part, and they're like, Friends is popular, let's see if one of those guys will well, take the part. I had part. heard that the, the original casting... The original original is actually Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah. Who was Powder. Yeah. Yeah. And he, there was some weird reason he walked. Like there was somebody he didn't get along with or they decided after screen tests they didn't, oh no, that's what it was. They decided he looked too much like, um. William Hurt. William Hurt. Thank you. They thought it would be, they, 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 yeah, for some reason they thought the two of them looked too much alike, which was, this is what I've read over the years, which is weird. Yeah, that is. (laughs) But like. Uh, Get the yeah. fuck out. We need someone with dark hair. Right? But yeah, uh, yeah so I, don't, I don't have no idea how that happened. I, I Just sort of semi-related. Lacey Chabert was doing basically the same thing. She was on a show called Party of Five. At the same time this, this movie came out, she was flying back and forth to do both. Um, I, again, so it, was, it was a real Back to the Future situation. Yeah. Well, and you know, again, I feel a lot like uh, – um, they were just like, well, Party of Five's a popular show. See if one of those girls will take a part, you know? I mean, uh, and, and Heather Graham was dating the director. So, I mean, this is like like two-thirds of the casting for this film is just like, are they on a popular TV show or are they currently, like, interacting with my genitals? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a good reason to get hired, yeah. Yeah, right? We get, it makes the casting couch part a hell of a lot easier. You're already dating. Oh, God. <laughs> That's how movies work, right? <laughs> I mean, I'd say no, but I'd be lying. <laughs> so do you understand what's going on in the beginning here? Well, all right. Here's here's the problem. I do, and also I don't, um, because they never really fully explain it. I have a feeling it's something we were meant to find out in a sequel. So, their Earth has gotten so polluted, it's beyond saving. It, it there's there's a finite window of time left, a decade or two. I can't really actually give you a number. I just they can't say remember. Twenty what it is. years. I think twenty years. Yeah. Where it's like, basically, we're done. This planet's not going to be habitable anymore. We need to find somewhere else to live now. They've launched a, a program to look for other planets in deep space that might be habitable by people, and they found one. Um, but the the trip there, even on the fastest ships man has, takes 10 years. And that's just too long in, in order to colonize before Earth is dead. So they're building what is basically... And you could even call it a Stargate in a sense. It's not that much different from the concept in Stargate. It's a hypergate. Yeah, it's a hypergate though. But the idea is basically the same. You've got one entrance slash exit on either end. And if you enter at either end, you end up getting shot to the other. And it makes a trip that would normally take 10 years instantaneous. So Earth is already 
75% of the way done or close to it, building the half of the gate that's at our end. But they need to build the other half of it out where this planet is. And for some reason, Mr. Robinson, this famous scientist, has volunteered himself, his wife, and their children to spend 10 years in cryostasis going out there so that he can supervise the building of the other half of this gate. And where they open the film with this action sequence with, with Don James, um, I think, was that, was that his name? Don James? Lenny James. Hey, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, Morgan from The Walking Dead. Hey, there you go. <laughs> they, uh, they basically have set up that there's, there's a terrorist group called the Sedition who do not want this gate to be built and they're constantly attacking it. And so Matt LeBlanc's character has been called into action because some ships run this, some ships owned and operated by this group, the Sedition are attacking the earth hypergate in order to try to keep it from ever being completed. The part I don't get is why they never give you a reason. There's just this group, the Sedition is trying to stop this from happening, but they never tell yeah, who's you why. That, the Joker. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Exactly. It's basically like, we just want to fuck with this thing. They also- Sending out the Gentex. Right? Yeah, exactly. They also, they allude to the fact that um, the, these sedition people are, a lot of them are mutants, but they don't explain why. Like, they don't, they don't tell you why they're mutants or what made them mutants. It's not like in Total Recall. It's like, yeah, they lived in cheap domes and they got exposed to space air. Like, it's like, nah, they're just, they're mutants. So, I mean, there's, there's, the whole rest of the movie, it bothered me. I'm like, I don't understand why these people are doing this. <laughs> I didn't give it a second thought the first time I saw this movie, but definitely seeing it now, I'm think I'm wondering what the hell's going on, what this backstory is. There's a pretty good message, I think, about, like, climate change and pollution because the planet is fucked. Yeah. And it's 2058, and they say in 20 years, it will be completely uninhabitable. I think certain parts of the story are, are surprisingly timely for right now you know the like that we the, the recycling efforts were too late you know we couldn't get it done in time and one of the recurring motifs throughout the remainder of the movie is that um i can't remember the, her character's name now the younger of the two daughters the lacey chabert character penny. penny penny spends a huge part of the movie recording herself and it, it, if you look at the screen you can see it says it's a video diary she's keeping a video diary but that's not that far off from girls that age now vlogging on youtube on this eve before she is torn from everything she knows, kidnapped, hurled into deep space against her will. What thoughts fill the mind of the daring space captive? Will there be boys in Alpha Prime? What will I wear? Yeah, it's it's, just, it's not dissimilar from like doing a Facebook or Instagram live stream, it right. seems like. Exactly. And you know, at the time it was like in 98, it was like, oh, that seems really weird and futuristic. And why would girls be doing that? And yeah. Fast forward to 2020. It's like, no, 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 they're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> exactly. I thought the same thing, for sure. They made her character pretty vapid, though, which we'll talk about when we get there. Well, speaking of the Robinson family, so we get to meet them after this battle where we see that Matt LeBlanc is like the best pilot, I guess. Actually, no. I got to talk about that for a little bit. So he he's a really good pilot. He helps his friend out. He saves his life, whatever. But how does it look to you? What do you think of the ship design and the CGI? The CGI is pretty hit and miss for me. Like Sometimes it's pretty good, and sometimes... Pretty fucking lame. I thought the exact same thing. One of the high points of this movie for me was I actually really liked a lot of the set design. And um, I think they did a really nice job of not only making everything look very convincing, but also taking a little bit of late 60s inspiration from the TV show without making any of it look 
dated, at least for the year it was made. It's the problem with sci-fi in general is that it, it's it's made from the perspective of the year in which it was made. Yeah. So, you know, stuff from the 60s looks like the future from the 60s perspective and stuff from the 90s looks like the future from the perspective of the 90s. But uh, at least relevant to when the time it was made, none of it looked weirdly dated, but it did look kind of classic. But I'd agree with you. Some of the CGI looked pretty damn good considering it's 22 years old. And some of it was just kind of like, ah, that that does not look good. And they didn't need the bits that didn't look good, I think. But yeah, I agree. More on that to come. Yeah. So the family. So there's William Hurt, who plays the father, John Robinson. Mr. Robinson is probably what I'll end up calling him. He's leading us to Alpha Prime, and he's bringing his family. It's a 10-year trip in cryo. He has a son named Will, who's like a child prodigy. And we know that because he won the science fair for his time travel machine. He's he won first prize again. Is this the new model he's been working on? The crazy idea he's got about a time machine? <laughs> Pretty sharp stuff for a midget. That kid is a just very, very, very slightly, slightly less poorly written Anakin. Do they have a name for what's wrong with you? I'm a person, and my name is Anakin. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, um... Oh, Will Wheaton? I was thinking, <laughs> yes, Wesley Crusher. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, because, you know, he's so good at everything, and he's, of course, he's the one that's going to save the day. Yeah, I got, right. I got severe Wesley Crusher vibes. Th that kid did very little. I mean, he's been in some other stuff, but he was never in any other, like, big movies. Kind of unfortunate for him. I kind of thought also that he was the same kid from Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Dewey. <laughs> I thought he was that kid. Yeah. He's not. No, and, and, uh, he's supposed to be the nicest person in real life, I've heard from a new number of different people. But, uh, but yeah, no, not the same actor. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a child prodigy. Um, we got Penny, who's, I guess, your typical teenage girl. You said she was vapid. One more question, Professor. Now that the mission's been pushed up, how do your children feel about leaving the Earth behind? They couldn't be more excited. This mission sucks! I don't want to leave early. You know, I don't, I don't want to go at all. We will discuss this at dinner. For the last three years, I've missed everything. Training, so I can spend the next ten years missing everything else. I'm not staying home for dinner. I'm going out to see my friends. Penny. I'm going out to... Say goodbye to my entire life. Well, I, so on the one hand, they made her character super intelligent, and and she's apparently into like genomics and biology, and she helps her mother with medical stuff. But at the same time, every moment of her, practically ninety percent of every moment, you see her where she isn't working on something. She then floats back to her list of things she's going to miss. And her list of things I'm going to miss is Billy and popcorn and kissing. And it's like, I get that she's supposed to be a 17-year-old girl or whatever, 15, 16, 17-year-old girl, but she's also a genius. And, you know, I, I, I get the beginning of the film, they're trying to underline she's rebelling a little bit because she doesn't really want to be taken to space. You can't blame her. But they just it's just so cliche, <laughs> this, this stupid – and they go back to that list of hers over and mm -hmm. over and over and over. And it's just she's got nothing – they don't give her anything interesting to say outside of the moments where she's working on something. It's like, that's really, 
unfortunate. You made this character intelligent for no reason, basically. Yeah. Because her brother's constantly saving the day and her older sister designed all the cryo tubes. And it's like, what are you doing with her? She's the one that gets this weird monkey pet, has a list of stupid shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, she, I, I, I agree, man. She, she, she's not really doing much. Neither is the yeah. mom. No, I me, definitely had the hots for her when I was a little kid. And Mimi I saw this Rogers. Movie. Mimi Rogers was also in uh, Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers. She was in, she was, uh, yeah, she was the older, at the beginning in the 60s. Oh, okay. Before she, Elizabeth Hurley's character. Vanessa's mom? Yeah, Vanessa's mm-hmm. mom. And she was Tom Cruise's first wife. Oh. Seriously. And she's the one that turned him into a Scientologist. <laughs> oh, okay. Honest to God. <laughs> I'll have to verify that with my sources. But I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> that is on Wikipedia. <laughs> She was also in Ginger Snaps, which is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I forgot about that movie. She is way better in that movie, though. She was. She she has nothing to do in this movie. Nothing. No. I mean, you know, and that was part of the problem for me is at at least the larger chunk of this cast, her, William Hurt especially, and Gary Oldman, are and Heather Graham as well, are capable actors, and they just didn't give them much. Yeah, I agree. And William Hurt... Like, we talked about him a little bit. He is the dad, but this is... I don't think it's the fault of the script, necessarily. But William Hurt has got to be one of the most boring motherfuckers I've ever seen on screen, man. (laughs) Even as General Ross. Like, I mean, he's... William Hurt has been in a ton of fucking movies. He's been in so many movies. But I always see him as this role and the guy in Michael. Like, when I think of William Hurt, I think of these two, like, really... I don't know how to describe him other than he's a fucking boring dude. I don't I, I wouldn't say that I find him boring. In fact, he's been in some of my absolute favorite movies. But um he's definitely one of those guys that has a very, very consistent way of playing virtually every character he plays. I was having this argument with somebody the other day, and I think you really misunderstood the point I was trying to make. I I think Robert De Niro is much the same way. I don't mean that as a knock. De Niro's a fantastic actor, but De Niro De Niro was fantastic because he does like two types of guy really, really well. And that's just the only kind of part he ever gets. Um, and, and my, my counter example to that is, is Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis, as long as he's, as long as he physically generally matches, like he couldn't cast him to play a seven foot three inch black man. He couldn't obviously. play Bane. Right. Exactly. But like, exa- perfect. Exactly. But as long as he physically matches what that character is more or less supposed to look like, he can play it. He can play them all. And you will forget that he's him three minutes into the movie. Absolutely. He's fucking brilliant. It's but incredible. he's the king, you know? He is. There's like two or three other people at that level. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely transformative. One of the people at that level, I think, is Gary Oldman. Yeah. And Gary Oldman plays Dr. Smith in this movie. So he's the villain. Now, he has been tasked with sabotaging this mission. Right, so he's got a job from a higher up that we don't see a whole lot of that says basically stop the ship from going out. I guess this is the Joker guy. The sedition hired me to provide access to Daniel's apartment and no more. My work is done. They found a replacement pilot. Our attack on the hypergate failed. How tragic for you. We require a more direct intervention on your part. Oh, I see. Well, it will cost you. And I'm afraid that my price has just become astronomical. Well, he's supposed to be a contact from that terrorist group, the Sedition. 
Yes. Who, again, you're never given any motives for. And, uh, yeah, the, the first mission they give, um, give him was to provide them with some kind of systems access. And when he goes to them and says, pay me, I've done what you asked. They're like, actually, we want you to do more. And initially they tell him they want him to sneak on the ship and reprogram one of the security droids to wait until I think 16 hours into the mission and then just kill the family. Yeah. But uh, he sneaks onto the ship to do that and then stuff happens and he gets stuck there. Yeah. (laughs) So Gary Oldman. This came out a year after Fifth Element. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) What do you think of his general performance in this movie? I mean, he's... I I he's the most committed of all of them I think. Um it's really funny he he's commented in the years since the fifth element that he doesn't actually like the movie and would would otherwise have never have taken it. But um blasphemy. Right? Yeah, I I think so too. And that movie dude, I didn't realize until years after it had come out there are people who fucking despise that movie. It it got really really mixed reviews from critics and like I can understand why even as someone who loves it, there are parts of it I can pick out and say, I wish you'd done that a little differently. But um, I love the movie. And yet Oldman has said, I can't remember what the name of it was, but Luke Besson helped Oldman get a much smaller movie produced like a year and a half before. And Besson's return favor was take this part in The Fifth Element. And that's really the only reason he did it. Uh, like Romeo's bleeding maybe that's what it was it was one of one of i, I probably messed up films. the title but i think i know what you mean yeah right and uh yeah and but this one total opposite oldman apparently at least at one point said that he took the part because he thought it would be fun and he wanted to do something that was more family oriented and uh i i think he's the only one really having fun with this part i think he the the, the character that character from the tv show is a creepy old fuck and uh I think Oldman did it in a, in a way that sort of retained that, but better. You misjudge me. I, I only want to help you. Help us? Try to kill us. But now our fates have intertwined. If your father and that idiot West fail, I have no chance of getting home. It's in my best interests that they succeed. And I always follow my best interests. And um, it's too bad everyone else wasn't quite operating at that level. <laughs> Although at the same time, I the the kid who played Will is probably the only one who I'd pick out really stumbling with his his dialogue. The other ones, I don't. I think it was the script. I think I don't think any of them really gave a bad performance per se. It was just like, what are you going to do with this? Yeah. Uh, Our final main character of the group is Judy, played by Heather Graham. Um, this is one of the first major movies I saw her in. She, I think she kind of like took off after this, especially with uh, the Boogie Austin Nights. Powers sequel. And Austin Powers, yeah. There's another Austin Powers tie-in. But she plays right. the older daughter, Judy, who uh, Matthew... Wait, it's not Matthew Perry. Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> <laughs> she plays the older daughter, Judy. It would have been Matthew Perry. Who <laughs> Matthew Perry. Matthew, God damn it. Who Matt LeBlanc <laughs> has the hots for. <laughs> Uh, so Matt LeBlanc is going to be their ship, uh, captain or not cap pilot. There's one moment. Thank you for saying that. I, it pilot should be correct, but there's one moment where there's one moment where he's trying to get out of this assignment and he tells his superior officer, you guys should go get so-and-so. He's a great, I think he's his flyer. He's a great flyer. It's like, why would you say flyer? 
Why wouldn't you say pilot? You're a pilot. Flyer sounds so weird. Doesn't even sound like the right thing to refer to that person as. And then there's another point later in the movie where I think Penny refers to what he does as driving the ship. Yeah, you don't drive this. Like you people grew up in a world where space travel already existed. Like at the point Penny was born, space travel existed. You grew up in the future, goddammit. Yeah, you're driving the ship? Who the fuck drives a ship? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, So he's got the hots for Judy, doesn't he? That's one cool fish I'd love to thaw. He does. He's got the hots for her. She's not interested. She's, you know, I'm thinking about it now. I was going to say she's a, a bit thin on character herself, but the reality is they pretty much all are. So I think this is one of those movies where it was like, not not that it was good enough to merit it, but it really should have been 35 minutes longer. They just they had all these characters and they're like, all right, we've got to get all of them in, but we're going to do very little with every single one of them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's kind of relegated to the love interest for the most part of right. Matt LeBlanc. And then at the end comes around for no apparent reason. Okay. So, yeah. all right, we're going to talk about this now then. Right. They're trying to make him Han Solo, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he's he is kind of this franchise franchises Han, but he's not like he's not, he has right. none of the he has none yeah. of the charisma or likability, right? As, or the grit, yeah. yeah, or the grit as Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Yeah, absolutely. He's kind of just typical like jock pilot dude, you know. <laughs> like I, it's fine, but you're not interesting, like. So they do go to take off in their ship. The Jupiter 2 is what it's called. So the takeoff scene was pretty noteworthy to me because when it takes off, it takes off like a NASA rocket, doesn't it? Like it's it's stationary. It has uh, jet propulsion to yeah. leave the atmosphere. It does have like a multi-rocket system. It's a very, very dynamic, very explosive takeoff sequence. But yeah. And, and that, the shell looks like like a UFO vessel, like like a like you know, like the typical saucer. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have the torpedo esque shape of like you look at the a lot of the the spacecraft over the years that have been used to get people out of the atmosphere. A lot of them have a sort of torpedo esque shape to them. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was like weird that it looks that way and it takes off like a traditional rocket, but doesn't look like a traditional rocket due to the fact that like that shape, that UFO shape. I mean, it's it's theorized that they're shaped that way because they, like, create gravity and that's how they fly. Like, if Bob Lazar has taught me anything. Right. But – Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, part of it – well, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna sort of take this – use a different movie as an example. Um, the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. When when they were – no, no, no. Well, I'm sorry. It was the wrong movie. Wrong movie. It was 2001. It was when they were making 2001. Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick called Carl Sagan – to ask him what he thought aliens would look like because the two of them had been arguing to no end with each other over what Martians should look like because they originally intended to show them in the story. And Sagan's response, this is not verbatim, but was basically something to the effect of they would look so different from anything we can conceive that there's no way you'd get it right. You may as well just make up whatever you want. Yeah. And like Arrival did a good... Right. Depiction of something completely alien. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think in this case, they were probably like, maybe this ship should look totally different from anything people in the real world are used to because it's decades in the future and we've moved on. And, I, you know, it's supposed to be – you look at something like the Apollo rockets that went up during the 60s and 70s. They were really meant just to like get these guys to the moon for a little while and then come back where this ship was meant to be lived on. It's more like the ISS really. 
Um, it was really meant to be lived on by a large group of people for an extended period of time. And, or, you know, look at like the Nostromo and the original <clears throat> alien. I think that's a very similar concept where it's like, it's a working ship. They get lived, they live on it. There are labs on it. There are kitchens on it. So, I mean, I'm with you. I get what you're saying. But I, in that case, it was just like, it's just a different approach. Yeah. Uh, Fair enough. Mm. They do take off and they go into cryo. Gary Oldman is trapped on the ship because he's double crossed by the, uh, by the Joker. And this is 27 minutes in. So it's kind of late in the game in the movie. They have the second action scene. So the first one was the space battle. The second one is the robot that was reprogrammed to kill everyone. It, it starts rolling through the ship and just blasting shit. And Gary Oldman wakes up. And why don't you tell us about what happens from there? Yeah, we sort of skipped a little bit that Oldman has been on the ship. He's reprogrammed this robot. He tries to leave the ship. And on his way out, he gets a message from the person he's working for, basically to say, by the way, thanks for doing that. But fuck you. We're trapping you on the ship. And they knock him out. And um, so he wakes up. He comes around. He realizes that if he lets the robot do what he reprogrammed to do it to do, that he's going to go down with the rest of the ship. So he goes hauling ass after this robot, but he cannot stop it. I mean, it wasn't really meant to be stopped. And uh, it starts attacking the navigational system and the life support systems. It starts attacking the cryostasis tubes the family is in um, or the individual tubes that they're all in. Also, there was, speaking of the CG, there was the moment where they all got into the tubes individually. And as each of them got in. They get the CG visor. Yeah, there's like a visor that wraps around their head. Like once, once they had transitioned from the CG to the physical prop, the physical prop looked all right. But the CG transition, especially on Heather Graham when she gets in, terrible. Yeah. Really, really did not come <laughs> off well. I mean, that's, that's like, that's like Cat Eyes Jabba level. Bad attempt. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so eventually the family, most of the family comes out of their cryostasis tubes and they all sort of have to, first priority is just what the fuck is going on? Stop this from happening. So they're not really paying attention to Oldman at first. Eventually they manage to, or Will really manages to subdue the robot by taking over its control mechanism. The family gets most of the rest of things sort of to a point where they can address other issues but they realize that judy heather graham has not come out of her cryotube she's basically dying inside of it kind of ironic that the one person whose pod didn't work properly is the one who designed that entire system and also that she was made out to be this massive genius but she wouldn't have designed those pods with an easy like emergency release mechanism so yeah. that she could be freed um it's kind of something you find on anything like that but John Hurt's, Hurt's character, was it him or, or LeBlanc? One of the two of them realizes that, that, uh, Smith is there. They knew him already. He was a physician that they'd all been seeing on Earth. And, uh, you know, it's basically what the fuck are you doing here? You caught, you must have caused this. And Oldman keeps himself alive. Smith keeps himself alive for the moment by saying, Judy's going to die inside that tube. I'm the only physician on this ship and you need my help to get her out of there anyway. If you if you kill me, she's probably going to die. So they allow her him to help get her out of the tube. They get her to the medical bay. But while Mrs. Robinson and Penny are taking and Dr. Smith are taking Judy to the medical uh, ward, 
uh, Dr. Smith, I mean, not Dr. Dr. Robinson and Don, Matt LeBlanc, realize that the ship is now drifting into the sun. Yeah. Um, because it's it's been knocked way off course by the destruction of the navigational system. The sun has its own massive gravitational pull, which they're getting sucked into. There's a few minutes there where they think they're going to die because they realize that the ship's energy system is so damaged, they don't have enough engine power to pull themselves out of the sun's gravitational pull. So as a last-ditch effort to save themselves, Dawn activates the ship's hyperdrive, which is uh, um, his only choice, but kind of a bad idea because it's been established at this point that without the use of the gates to help the the ship's system navigate where it's supposed to, that hyperdrive is otherwise an entirely random jump, and you just end up wherever the fuck you end up. So they activate the hyperdrive, which takes them through the sun and keeps them all alive. But um, they end up somewhere in the distant universe. None of them knows anywhere, anything about where they are. The ship doesn't even know. Yeah, the ship's got no idea. It's checking its own navigational computers and finds nothing. And somehow, while they were doing that, Judy has come back to life, even though she was basically dead. Yeah, she was out. She was a cold fish. Right? (laughs) Who's a cold fish now? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't help but think of the movie Sunshine as they were going directly to the sun like that. It's far superior. Yeah, I was just going to say why. Sunshine's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Just like the looking through the the glass is probably that not part glass. That creepy. But with the bright sun just in their face. Yeah. yeah and, you know, the sun effect, the CG effect they used for the sun was pretty cool. Absolutely. One, one thing that did bother me, though, in this film is that anytime they needed a really, like, they had a real bright light source like that sun... They used really, really hot, really, really cool temperature bulbs to light the set. And it looks too white. I don't like it. They And they killed the contrast in some of the detail areas. I, that, I don't know why the cinematographer did that that way, but whatever. They do have a kind of neat uh, shot style when they hit the hyperdrive. Yeah. Where everyone freezes in time. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's it. I wanted to talk about. Thank you. Like, I agree with you. It's a really cool moment. Conceptually speaking, I'm 100% into it. I think it was neat. And when I saw that movie for the first time in a theater, I thought it was awesome. But that's another one of those effects that just did not age very well. So it's very similar to The Matrix, right? So the idea is everyone is still, but the camera is moving. Yeah, camera pan on stillness. Right. Yeah. So what do you think they did this the same way they did it in The Matrix with multiple... The camera ring. You know, with this one, I'm not 100% certain. I wouldn't be surprised if some of that was involved. It looked like it looked like they had some of the actors on wires to get the right shot, which is expected. But it also looked to me like a lot of it was matted in, composited in using CGI. Okay. And some of the CGI faces didn't come off looking right to me. Like, wasn't something I was paying attention to in 98. Well, in 98, this was much more current-looking CG. But in the, this time around, I was like, uh, that... I like the idea here, but it didn't come off quite the way I think they would have liked. Absolutely. <laughs> so they they do go through the sun. After the hyperdrive is done, they, they're lost in space. And I think Will Smith shows up and says, so So that's it, huh? We're yeah. some kind of lost in space. <laughs> We're lost in space. <laughs> uh, Will Smith would have had some, some wise crack to go with it. Like, welcome to space. <laughs> well, I just mean that famous Suicide Squad line. Oh, yeah. I saw someone in a comment section say that in Birds of Prey, Deadshot should have shown up and said, so that's it, huh? You guys are some kind of Birds of Prey? <laughs> uh, don't you love it in the movie when they say the title of the movie? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. 
And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. <laughs> so they're lost. Uh, they're, they're basically settling into their new situation. They got to like fix the ship. There's some flirting between Major West and Judy. It's mostly him. Mostly one-sided, yeah. He's not exactly Han Solo, this guy. So, Major, no family? Nothing to tie you down, no one to miss? Nah. I've never been the fit-in and play-nice type. I guess you think that's romantic. No. No, I don't. But what about you, Doc? Is there some lucky little nerd you left behind? I spent three years working on this mission, Major. We're trying to save the planet here. I haven't had time for fun. Well, if there's no time for fun, Doc, then what are we saving the planet for? Um, the kid rebuilds the robot and whatever deactivates the Kill the Robinson family programming. And that's going to come in handy in a little while that he can now control this robot. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> One of the more memorable scenes, I think. Right. Uh, they lock Dr. Smith in a room and kind of basically imprison him. Oh, yeah. And they're they're basically just settling into their situation out there in space. So not too long after that, maybe a few minutes after that, out there in the distant regions of unknown space where they randomly ended up, they do find two abandoned ships. Well, he <laughs> he, he does the stupidest thing in the history of any science fiction film ever. They, they, they see this weird, what looks to them like a tear in the fabric of space. And Matt LeBlanc, this super experienced military pilot with years of experience and 50 combat missions under his belt, is like, yo, I'm going to fly us into that. And then he just does it. There's that was a, scientific. Right? <laughs> like, there, was, there wasn't a moment of thought. I mean, Dr. Robinson's like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't just fly right into that thing. And he's like, nope, I'm making all the decisions later. And then just flies him right into it. And, and, and then and then they, they end up by these two ships. And this is like the cause of most of their problems. They, <laughs> yeah, it is. They, it they, is. They, I mean, I would they would have been much better off, I think, just floating around where they ended up to begin with. But yeah, so they end up next to these two ships. One of these two ships is clearly something human that they recognize. The other ship looks like a human ship, but none of them knows what the hell it is. None of them has ever seen anything like it before. They determine that it's it's basically an alien craft, right? Well, I, I that's a little confusing because on the one hand, they make it seem like it is an alien craft. But then the the underlying thing they ultimately get to through part of this experience is that they, they literally have gone through a rift in time. They've gone into the future. So the impression I got was that, oh, it's not an alien ship. It's actually a human ship from the future. I see. That's the one they don't explore. The other yeah. ship. Yeah, exactly. Because And then when they go into one of them, the uh, Proteus, I think is what they call that ship. Yeah. Then when they go in, they find more advanced versions of the same, of the Robbie robot, the one that Will's controlling. Yeah. So they do decide, let's investigate the ship. There's... They can't detect any life signs or they can't like get any responses to their hails or whatever. So they're just going to go on board and see what what happened. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. it's very uh, alien, ain't it? It's, it's very alien. Yeah. It, I was know. getting some very alien vibes. Like in, in terms of like this is a bad idea vibes. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, what they ultimately discover is basically that they've – they don't really quite realize it first. But they've, they've gone forward in time, some huge amount of time. And the ship they've discovered is a ship that was sent to rescue them. 
Um, and it was, it was being captained by the guy that Matt LeBlanc rescued at the beginning of the movie. Jeb. Jeb, yeah. Cool voice Jeb, yeah. I am not willing to give up. Don would keep looking for me. And um, that's why everything on the ship seems so advanced. But while they're looking around, they then encounter egg sacks and what what are basically like alien, a, an alien spider species. And while while well, bef- quite before that happens, Doctor Smith goes to one of the other security robots and steals a control pad out of it. Yeah, while they're investigating. So their investigation is. They download some maps for that area, trying to get themselves acquainted. That was the big discovery, is that because the ship they're on is from so far into the future, they discover on it star charts that cover huge parts of the universe that they didn't have maps for at the point that they'd come through. So they now have have enough map information to get themselves where they need to go, basically. Yeah. And they find (laughs) something... Before they encounter the spiders, they find a snarf. Oh, I wish it were snarf. <laughs> Snarf's a war hero. <laughs> um, no, they find Blarp. They find Blarp, yeah, which is not named it for what a pointless addition to the movie. Oh my this, god, it's so fucking stupid. I'm, I'm every time I'm gonna find a way to get a jab, and I'm sorry, this is a fucking straight up George Lucas move right here. <laughs> Let, let's just hey, make up a CG thing you can throw into that scene, like. When this thing is in full lighting and it, it and close-ups are involved, it just looks like utter shit. ILM, by the way. Oh, that's yep. sad. Yep. That's sad. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's just the state of CG in 98. It's another one of those, didn't bother me at all at the time. You look at it now, you're like, it's gross. It looks terrible. Well, some of the CG is fine when... Yeah. Like, the spiders, when they're moving... Yeah. And, and it's dimly lit, and they're far away, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it does. It does. And you're right. They were at a point in 98 with this at ILM, anyway, where they could get a lot of it more or less right, but they were, there were still elements where they were stretching what they were capable of. Like, the spider's teeth, when it shows them close up, Exactly. Like yeah. <laughs> when they get to the mouth, that's when the spider really breaks down. Like... So, uh... We, we, we encounter a bunch of spiders, so... There is alien life that exists in this movie, and it's in the form of space spiders. I don't think they were piloting that ship. They just kind of roam around in space, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they, you'd get really no information on how this happened, really, aside from that. Later on, and I, I'm not going to skip ahead completely, but later on when they encounter Will, older Will, he tells his father, the younger version of his father, that the spiders can basically just travel by launching themselves into space and floating until they get somewhere. And that they sort of just drifted their way to that planet. So I think what must have happened is this rescue ship is out there looking for um, the Robinson family and crew. And they encounter these spider things, which then just decimate the crew. But they're kind of oddly inspecific about it. I think there could have been a lot more story in that in that ship but yeah oh well yeah (laughs) chased by spiders that's a lot of the the next bit of the movie they're getting chased around this ship by the spiders they they lock them away in this room but they they break through because they're super strong um one of the two of the more memorable moments happen here so the kid is controlling the robot remotely he pulls up the holographic interface so he can like do his little like action kid scene this is another i one where I think they were a little ahead of their time on it. Cause I mean, at this point in 2020, we're, we're not quite there yet, but it's not, 
it's not nearly as unrealistic now as it was then. I mean, right. you know, there, there are a lot of games where you can, you've got like two interactive controllers you hold on to and your movement is what controls the game. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and at the time too, I remember thinking like that was probably my favorite moment of the movie where yeah. the, the kid's the little action hero and then, <laughs> right. but he's completely safe. Absolutely. In, in the other ship. And we also get the, the big trailer superhero shot of Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> Yeah. Where his fucking helmet folds down like Iron Man and he's, oh. he builds a giant rifle. I, the design of the helmet itself, it does. It looks like Mark One. It also looks <laughs> a little bit like the Rocketeer's helmet. Okay. Um, I, I actually really liked the way the helmet looked once it was fully on. But the CG effect of it rolling over his head was another one that they didn't quite get right. Yeah, like, <laughs> that was like the, one of the big moments in the trailer. I thought this was, was going to be a lot of him running around in some kind of mech suit fucking shit up. Well, and apparently like the one toy from this film that really was popular was the toy of that. Oh, there's, the there's toys from this movie? There were, there were. Oh my God, I need to get these. Right, they were, it was part of the tie-in. The toys were just about the only thing that they actually got made. I mean, and they didn't do as many of them as they planned on. But from my understanding, it's been a long time since I looked, from my understanding, that specific figure is the only one that's really worth any money too because it's the one people want. Uh, for any listeners, uh, me, Corey, I have a big fetish for 90s action figures in box. So if, you, so if you have any and you want to send them to me, send me a DM, I'll give you my address. I don't give a fuck. I still have all my boxed uh, McFarlane stuff and I still have some of the X-Men figures from like 97, 98, 99. Nice. Like, yeah. I, I, I buy some every now and then. Right. Conventions or what have you. Some of them were great, man. The original Age of Apocalypse figures were awesome. Yeah, I have the Wolverine removable hand Age of Apocalypse <sighs> figure. Dude, the removable hand Wolverine was the sickest. <laughs> yeah. That was way better than one-handed Aquaman. <laughs> Aquaman sucks, by the way. <laughs> Just Jason Momoa Aquaman or all? I actually, I, I don't. It, this is not anti-Jason Momoa. I think he's pretty cool, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not an Aquaman fan. They should have used him as Lobo. What are they doing? Oh my god, that would have been awesome. <laughs> that, what is? I wonder what that movie's going to be like, man. Not Jason Momoa. Or an, oh, and they're doing. Uh, god damn it. Uh, what's the vampire? They cast Jared Leto to play Morbius. Morbius, thank the, you. The living vampire. Yeah, dude. There's a movie I was looking forward to that I sort of lost interest in in the moment they cast him. But you know, my wife had to remind me the other day that Jared Leto can be a pretty fucking good actor. He actually can be. He she can she was be. like Dallas Buyers Club, and I was like, he was good. In Damn, that. she shut me down. Yeah, he's been pretty good in some other stuff too. I he was good in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I liked that. I wasn't a big fan of that him in that one. I mean, really? it's a good movie. Yeah, I like the movie. Maybe the only involvement I like from him is that he's he he semi answered the question about Harrison Ford being a replicant. Oh, he was yeah. like, maybe you are designed this way or whatever he says. Right. <laughs> God damn it! Just answer the fucking question. I'm sure you know this, but Harrison Ford and the director have conflicting views. Yeah, well, and they've I, they've gone back and forth before, and I mean, at one point, I think Ridley Scott was answering the question basically by saying, I don't really want people to know either way anyway. I want it to be an open-ended question. and That's the point, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to a lesser sci-fi movie. <laughs> yeah, much lesser. <laughs> Alright, so, they're being chased by the spiders. They, they get out of there, but not before Gary Oldman is scratched by one of them, which is the only physical contact they have with the spiders is Gary Oldman gets scratched on his back and they show a close up of it because it's important. Yeah. <laughs> they escape, but the robot gets left behind and is sworn by spiders. And what they decide to do 
after they escape onto their ship, because the spiders are after them in space at this point, is to blow up the other ship. Now, this is against orders from John Robinson. Major West decides to do this. It, Robinson's take on that scene just doesn't make any sense. Why would you not destroy that ship? Yeah, I mean, there's like 5,000 fucking right? spiders that are probably going to come after right? you and kill you. Are you, you got to send somebody back here for research? Fuck off. I'm blowing it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, no one's going back on that fucking right? thing. Come what on. are they doing, man? I don't care how many mech suits you have. <laughs> right, yeah. No, we're done. We're done with the spiders. Thank you. <laughs> or but, are we? Oh, well, actually, we're not quite. But we want to be. We're trying to be. <laughs> we do want to be. <laughs> All right. So they have to crash land. So they're escaping the explosion. They get kind of caught in the wake of the explosion of the other ship. It, it fucks them up a little bit. So they have to crash land and they land on Hoth. <laughs> Uh, they do land on hot. Yeah. Where's a wampa when you need one? <laughs> yeah, or probe droids. Right. What's that? A self-destruct. I didn't hit it that hard. <laughs> uh. So there's a little bit of friction when they land. Like, Major West and Mr. Robinson are kind of having a power struggle. Yeah, a little pissing contest. About, like, who's really in charge I or mean, who's more knowledgeable. Technically, Robinson should be in charge, but he was wrong about that ship. So... Yeah, I, there's too gray of an area as far as who's in charge because they say that Major West is in charge if it's a military situation, but yeah. like what constitutes is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like it's true. It's real kind of a weird gray area. Yeah. And then Mimi Rogers comes in and she's like, "No, nah, I'm in charge." You two knuckleheads. Yeah, that's kind of like her one big scene of the movie. Like, other than her just being a mom, is like... My family is on this ship, and you will follow my orders. Whether you agree with them or not, is that clear, Major? Hey, save your speeches. I like you. But I'm going to do whatever I think it takes to ensure the success of this mission, with or without your help. Is that clear, Professor? Am I interrupting something? No, really. I think you two should go ahead and slug it out. I mean, here we are, stranded on an alien world, and you boys want to get into a pissing contest? Please, go for it. I'll have Judy down here in a heartbeat to declare you both unfit, and I'll take over this mission. Now, I don't want to hear another word from you. Is that clear? Maureen. Not another word. Better. Now, if you've finished hosing down the decks with testosterone, I suggest you come with me. I may have found a way to get us off this planet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have a whole lot to do, poor woman. <laughs> she doesn't. So when they land on Hoth, there's a little bit of a lull where they're trying to figure things out again, kind of like when they first got lost. They have a quiet moment where Major West and Judy are are flirting and they're going to bang. <laughs> well, he thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> well, she says, let's do it right here. Right. And then it was like, ha ha, not really. <laughs> she pours water on his head. <laughs> right. So my quarters are yours. Excuse me? Don't play coy. We're the only single man and woman of consenting age in the galaxy. How much more of a setup do you need? So you figure why not just dispense with the pleasantries and get down to business? You have a way with words, Doctor. Do you want to show me how you handle the helm? Yeah. Right here? This console? Uh, yeah, right here would be fine. Why don't you just 
Hang on to your joystick. It's pretty fucked uh-huh. up. <laughs> <laughs> right? Take a shower. Uh, so what they end up finding on Hoth is there's this giant, like, bubble. Maybe you can tell us about the bubble, because I don't really know how else to explain it. Yeah, it is kind of a bubble. So basically, they're kind of slowly establishing that the same phenomenon that created created the rift in time and space that brought them here to begin with is also causing other weird temporal lapses, so to speak, within the fabric of space. It's basically like there are isolated areas where time is shifting independent of everything around it. And that's what causes the bubble. Like inside the bubble, time is somewhere else. And um, they don't know what's causing it. But uh, Mr. Robinson and um, Matt LeBlanc, Don, make yet another just absolutely insane tactical choice and decide that they're going to just wander into this thing to see what happens. Well, they go up to it and the the scientist guy, who's Mr. Robinson, he just puts his hand in it like yeah. immediately. One of my most remembered lines from this movie is when Matt LeBlanc says, that was scientific. Oh, yeah, that was scientific. Because <laughs> he just like, sticks his hand in it. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I, Mimi Rogers at that point, Mrs. Robinson has told them that there's, I guess we should take a half step back. They, their energy levels are so low at this point. They don't have enough power to break free of the gravitational pull of this planet or get outside the atmosphere. But... Mrs. Robinson has identified that there's radioactive material within walking distance of a large enough quantity that theoretically they could use it to power themselves off this planet. So Mr. Robinson and Don are theoretically going out into this world to try to get to that material. But I I still, I just watched it again yesterday. I still don't really understand why they had to go into the bubble to get this stuff. What are they going to do? Just like carry the material? To the yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. They've got nothing to protect them from this highly radioactive material. They're just going to like <laughs> just gonna carry pick it, it up by hand. <laughs> <laughs> right? So they go into the bubble and they you don't really see much of them again for a few minutes. But basically they end up getting somewhere where Matt, Matt LeBlanc gets knocked out. They both get knocked out. They both get knocked out. That's right. When they wake up again, they're encou- they encounter Will's robot, which did not go in with them and which has sort of been destroyed. It Will's rebuilding. Young young Will is rebuilding this thing on the ship, and yet somehow it's there with them inside the bubble. Yeah. And um, at the same time, Will is the stupidest genius in the history of the universe because he lets himself in – well, while he's rebuilding – the robot, the robot identifies Morse code being tapped through the ship. The Morse code signal says danger, Will Robinson, danger. Which Get is it? Yeah, which is the, <laughs> the, the famous um, – well, the robot tells you that for what it's worth. The robot's <laughs> like, that's what it says. Yeah. Danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson, danger. It's the famous line from the old TV show. It's what the robot used to say in the TV show, danger, Will Robinson. So Will finds that, that the tapping is coming from Dr. Smith's room. So rather than getting – any adult whatsoever, including his genius older sister and his genius mother, who are both on board the ship with him. He lets himself into Dr. Smith's room, and it takes Smith about 12 seconds to just manipulate this kid into helping him escape. Yeah, they escape. They, they head toward the bubble together. Right? This You're, fucking little dipshit. Little, little dipshit? The fuck is wrong with you? At least go get a grown-up, moron. Like Fuck you, you little dipshit. So he's like, oh, yeah, I'll help you sneak out. And then he literally helps Smith sneak past his mother. 
Um, so he knows that he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing. He and Smith go into the bubble after his father and Don. And uh, shortly thereafter, Dr. Smith finds graves that turn out to be the graves of all of the Robinsons except Will. Yeah. So uh, you kind of put the pieces together at this point that inside the bubble is the future. Yeah. So it's it's their ship still being on the planet. Many years in the future, I think they say 30 or 20. Something like that, yeah. But yeah, so in the future, the robot's in there. He's fully built, fully realized. And pretty much everyone except Will is dead because we see the graves. Yes. Uh, but he, the young Dr. Smith chooses not to share this information with little Will. And uh, they they go on. And uh, Mr. Robinson finds grown Will. Yeah, Mr. Robinson finds grown Will and discovers that so one of the running themes of the film is that Will's been trying to build a functioning time machine. Yeah. And his father considers it a flight of fancy. And everyone has told him that, that you, you can't do it. Don't bother trying to do Look this. Look what my flights of fancy <laughs> have brought now. <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, so he's he's used what was the hyperdrive out of the, um, out of the ship to, to build a functional time machine that for some reason only... It, it, it seems to just be sitting there running all the time. Yeah. And yet it somehow it's only got enough power for one trip. Just and turn it's like, that fucking thing off. Yeah, just turn it off. What's your problem? Why are you conserving? Conserve the power then. Like, you run the thing all the time. It's only got enough power for one jump. It's weird. So, older Will is, he's pretty haggard looking. He's got like really long hair. He's got an unkept beard. He's very dirty. Obviously, he's been living seemingly alone on this planet what's he been eating building this machine i don't know he's been eating spider legs right <laughs> i don't know what he's eating man and he tells his, his own feces it kind of looks like that yeah, he's played by jared harris did you recognize that guy yeah i couldn't put the name to it but i did recognize his face he's the main guy in chernobyl yeah and he was completely dubbed because the actor doesn't sound like that <laughs> so every one of his lines is dubbed from a different person it is they adr'd the whole thing <laughs> they did and uh, what else? Uh, oh, yeah. He, he tells his father that the spiders followed them from. Okay, I'm realizing something wrong with something I said earlier, actually. Now that I'm thinking about this. Um, he tells his father that the spiders followed them to this planet because uh, this is a planet nearby uh, where they blew the ship up. They just kind of crash landed on it. Yeah, it's in the outer rim. And. Oh. Um, Outer rim jobs? What? <laughs> um, Hoth is in the outer rim. <laughs> oh, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, and that that the spiders killed the girls before they were subdued. It's then revealed that there that there's a future Doctor Smith with him, and that he's evolved into a man spider thing. Okay. The, yeah. So future Doctor Smith, he is a giant man. In a giant black robe, and you can only see his mutated, CGI, horrific, grotesque spider face. Spider face. Before he disrobes, he looks incredible, I think. He looks horrifying. Best effect of the whole film. He is Absolutely. so fucking scary. When yeah. he has the robes on, and he lo- and the only CGI is the face, and it's somewhat obscured in darkness, so it doesn't. it's not, you know completely lit yeah i think it looks good man no they did a nice job with it they did a really nice job with it that was one of those moments where i was like damn you know what that one still looks pretty good especially when you give it credit for being a 22 year old effect it looks really good and scary and scary yeah yeah but uh it they're all gonna converge well not all of them but young dr smith and young will are eventually gonna get there and converge with 
Don and Dr. Smith and Old Will and Spider Smith. Um, yeah, that's what he's credited as. <laughs> he really is Spider, yeah. Dr. Spider Smith or something like that. Um, but uh, Will eventually comes to the realization. Well, I guess we should even go back from there. The, the Dr. Smith does not want Will to use this time machine. Um, he, you know, it's, it's what's been causing all these rifts in time, basically. The gash in time that brought them to, to this area in the first place and the bubble that they're all inside of. This is all a side effect of Will's time machine. And his father tells him, you know, you have no idea what this thing will do on Earth if you take a trip back. Will tells him he's spent 20 years building the time machine so that he can go back to the day they left Earth and stop the launch from happening in the first place. And his father's he's the terrorist. He's the terrorist. And his father keeps telling him, you know, um, he's like, like, that might destroy Earth. Right. There's a possibility that this will fuck up the whole planet. So probably a bad idea for you to be doing that. I think his appropriate response should have been the planet's fucked anyway. Exactly. (laughs) Like the whole point of this was that you guys were trying to get everyone off Earth. So, uh, but, uh, and then Spider Smith comes in and defends adult Will. And basically says that he went through years of agonizing transformation, turning into what he is now, and that it changed him as a person. I'm a now a horrific monster. <laughs> right? <laughs> with a heart of gold. It's basically <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Uh, but Will realizes as time goes on through this last third part of the third act that, like, that bit is bullshit. That Smith's the one that killed the girls. Which is actually, as a revelation, really disturbing to think about. Because Smith is this weird, lascivious creep, even when he's human. And the transformation obviously made him even more of a psychopath than he was. He probably did some really fucked up things to those girls. Oh, God. And, you don't go there. Right? Please. No, he did. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail, but Penny, is, Penny was like 16. Like, this is a fucked up. This is a fucked up thing to add to this movie. It's supposed to be a family movie. Like, But then, so here's, here's where I got to take a step way back for a minute. It didn't occur to me, we were talking about the theory with how the spiders got to the ship to begin with. Will Will comes to the realization that Smith's the one that killed the girls. The spiders did not follow them to that planet. Yeah, that's so, true. So how the fuck did the spiders get to that ship? I was wrong before. I could not, po- what I said before couldn't possibly be right. So, I don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah, weird. <laughs> another, another of many plot holes. But, uh, but yeah. So, that leaves us with Spider Smith and then the human version of Smith, they confront each other because human Smith gets a gun and he's trying to take over the situation. But I don't know what he's what his goal is. Like he gets a gun and he's like, "All right, everybody freeze!" But like, what does he want? Like, what is he trying to achieve? They're all like lost in space together. Like, There's a huge problem. Like, like, the, the, like once he's there and he knows the time machine exists, you can sort of infer that he wants to use it to send himself back to before the launch. But he didn't go into the bubble knowing that the time machine was there to begin with. Right. So what? 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 What the fuck was his plan before he knew the time machine was there? I don't know. Like in a situation like this, even the fucking. Evil creep is like going to work together with them to get out of it. So yeah. I, I don't know what, what he's trying to do. He just like wants to be in charge. Like, yeah, I mean that. And then then that's right. It's the spider version of him kills the younger version of him. But then you find out that the spider version of him has been waiting around all these years for Will to finish the time machine because he figures that as a spider mutant, he can go back to Earth and literally lay a bunch of mutant spider egg sacs and then 
use the spider babies as an army to take over Earth with. Like, this is his plan now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's he basically like a, creates the Starship Troopers future yeah, single-handedly. I'm, right? I mean, it's it's like the evil plan out of a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic. <laughs> it it's is. It's really weird. It is, yeah. <laughs> Did you think that I would let you go? Let all that I have become vanish. Look at me. I am no mere man. I am a god. Within these exacts grow the seeds of a master race of spiders. We shall descend upon helpless Earth, an entire planet to rule, an entire planet on which to feed. And. He reveals himself outside of the robe. So he disrobes and he shows what he looks like. He, he looks like a shittily rendered version of Alien, kind of. from. Yeah, it's kind of a halfway to my eye between the Xenomorph from Aliens and the bug version of Edgar from the end of The First Men in Black. Yeah. <laughs> like, but pretty bad looking. Like, Yeah, that one. It, it, he was way better in the robe than out of it. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's like, what's in the... There's this element of like mystery when he's in the robe you know right and i think the robes were actually there I yeah think, and then they cg had the face yeah i think that's right yeah anyway yeah so while mr robinson uh major west and little will are captured they're basically being held by the robot and will kind of gets the robot to let him free using the power of love i need you to help us now robot because we're friends Logic error. Friendship does not compute. Just forget logic. Act with your heart. Robot has no heart. Robot is powered by a fusion pulse generator. Every living thing has a heart. My programming has been modified to remove all emotion. Any attempts to override command protocols may result in fusing my neural net. Please, robot. If you don't let us go, we're all gonna die. So I'm asking you now, will you help us? Will you be my friend? Robot attempting to deactivate control mode. Come on, robot. Commands over it. Do it. Destroy Robinson family. Destroy, You did it. Robot will save Robinson. Robot will save his friend. Uh, so he, he basically gets him to like undermine his own programming and says, no, Robot, I'm your friend. Search within your robot's soul. Remember me. And he's like, he's like all conflicted and he breaks through and he's like, yes, I will help you. That whole scene is such bullshit. <laughs> it is, isn't it's it? Just like this last grasp for a touchy-feely, like, family moment. It's all about love. But you're talking to a robot. That's like, it's not how robots work. It's like, it, it, you can't you can't be like, no, no, you actually, you love me. Like, no, that memory was wiped. It's been overwritten by something else. <laughs> it's not there anymore, goddammit. Right? It's like trying to convince the Terminator to love you. Like, no, no, fight it. You love it's, me. Yeah, it's a real... Uh... Terminator Dark Fate situation. It is. <laughs> right? God, I'm still mad about that movie. <laughs> that fucking Fuck. T-800 that's learned to be human and has a dog. <laughs> right? And a kid. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? He drinks beer. Yeah, why does he drink beer? I did. All right. Uh, oh. That's another episode of our podcast. You can yeah. check it out. All right. So, 
The dad is let free. He fights Spider Smith. It's not much of a struggle, but, you know, they kind of hitting each other back and forth, and he knocks him into the fucking disintegrating part of the time machine, so he, like, gets oh, disintegrated. Yeah, what's weird, it's like the portal, only part of the time portal is actually a time portal. The rest of it is apparently, like, a time saw. And a just, time wood chipper? Yeah, it just, like, disintegrates you. <laughs> so, yeah, so you gotta, like, jump dead center. Like, if your form is off, or like, you slip while jumping in, you fall in the outside particle bit. And yet Will shoves his father into it with, like, <laughs> no regard moments later. <laughs> Hope you don't get disintegrated later. Uh. Either way, I'm happy. You did kind of leave me here for a long time. Right? I don't care, you old fuck. <laughs> so, uh. yeah, that you're right. So the dad does get sent back down the portal. So the idea for Will was he's going to build this time machine, stop them from taking off, I guess undo his time, even though it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, I guess he figured that, like, he if he stopped the ship from leaving Earth in the first place, that none of it would happen. Because at the very least, they could delay the mission for long enough to undo the shit that Smith had been on the ship doing to begin with. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's another question about, like, how does time travel work within the confines of this universe? They're not going to answer. I think it's multiverse. It has to be. Because Smith yeah. kills the younger version of himself. Yeah, and doesn't and he doesn't disappear. disappear yeah. Wait, and like, and we've had this. Disc- I don't even remember what other movie we were talking about. Got to be was- a Terminator movie. Yeah, but like when I referenced uh, Marty in Back to the Future, where like when the timeline started to change, Marty literally started to just fade away, and that's always been my preference in regards to the way that gets handled in movies, just because I think it's the easiest to digest intellectually. That like the timeline was changed, that shit just didn't happen. So. In one of the multiverses in this movie, all the family without the dad dies because they take off on the ship when Matt LeBlanc and Will get back to the ship. Yeah. They take off without the dad. Yeah. Because the planet's getting destroyed from this time machine. That's right. He gets stuck on the planet. You know what? It was a Terminator movie. It was we were talking about Dark Fate. I was angry at the beginning of Dark Fate because my sentiment on it is that the Terminator that killed John shouldn't have existed in the first place. Right. It should have been erased when they changed history. Like, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fucking <laughs> killed John. Those pieces of shit. Pieces of shit. Dude, they started that movie by kicking me in the balls, man. <laughs> Fucking assholes. Right? Yeah, they massacred my boy. My boy, look what they did to my boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. So, older Will sends his dad back in time before the family ship gets destroyed, which is like, I don't know, 20 minutes in the past or whatever. And basically says goodbye. I always thought that scene was really touching when I was a kid, but it didn't quite have the same impact on me now. Come with us! I can't! Only enough power for one person, one trip, remember? Well? It's good to see you again, Mom. It's good to see you all. Take care of them, Will. Where older Will is like, take care of him for me, Will. The part that actually had the impact for me this time around is, so there's that first attempt after Dr. Smith gets trapped inside the bubble. There's a first attempt by Dawn and the family to get off the planet. And the reality is they know that they can't. They The whole point of this was that they don't have enough power to get off the the planet. They just try anyway. They're just trying it. And it's this... This act of just complete and total desperation. And there's that moment where they just have to accept they're all about to die. 
And Dawn looks at Mimi Rogers, Mrs. Smith, and just says, I'm sorry. And the only thing she can do is put her daughter in her arms in this last, like, 10 seconds before they're literally all about to die. That is a good moment. Yeah, that that one never really got to me before now. But that moment sunk this time. It was like, wow, that, that really is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. But the second time, when they send the dad back in time and they make the same trip, the dad knows that that's not going to work. So he has a new idea. Right. But and how fucking risky is that moment? That was another one. I didn't appreciate that plot point the first few times I saw this movie. That, like, what if LeBlanc had just done the same thing he had done when he blew up the spider ship? He could have just said, fuck you, I'm going to try it anyway, and they would have all died again. Like, Well, he knew that was a suicide mission. I think that's one of the differences. Yeah. But yeah. he uh, he pulls a classic Boss Nas Gungan move. He says, you must go through the planet core. I'll give you a ship. <laughs> <laughs> So they have to go through the planet core. They Instead of leaving the atmosphere, they go directly through the planet, and then they come out the other side. Which, I mean, they still have the same problem, I guess, coming out the other side. But I don't know. Maybe it's not round. Well, yeah, this way, <laughs> the way they play it is that, like, there's there's going to be a gigantic, like, gravitational shove as the, the planet collapses on itself. And they're going to use that to throw themselves out of its atmosphere as it collapses. But then a moment later, the flip side of that coin is the gravity then sort of reverses and the planet implodes on itself right, and starts yeah. sucking them back. If the 2009 in. Star Trek has taught me anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Rest uh, in peace, Vulcan. Rest in peace. Well, there's a Star Trek reference. There's that moment uh, way back in the film where they're about to leave to go onto the spider ship, the Proteus. Matt LeBlanc takes a spacesuit to Dr. Smith and throws it at him and says, put this on. We're going to see this other ship. And Smith's response was, I'm a doctor, not a space explorer. Uh, <laughs> Which was a Scotty joke. Uh, uh, McCoy. McCoy. Sorry, you're right, McCoy. <laughs> yeah. Still, that's pretty cool. Uh, we get a, a, a Star Wars-ish reference-ish, I say, because when they do escape the planet, Judy tells West, nice work, flyboy. <laughs> that's right it's a real Leia move right there it is don't get cocky kid <laughs> I got one um, so she kisses him so this whole thing of her rejecting him the whole movie alright so I gotta do a comparison right it, Han and Leia Han versus and Leia. these two <laughs> yeah, I mean, Han and Leia is way better Han and Leia is way better because I feel like there is chemistry I feel like yeah. she actually does like him and yeah there just, was charisma there yeah they, they have a connection and in this one it seems like the whole time she's really, like, putting her foot down. Like, look, I'm really actually not interested in you. Yeah, well, and then at the end, after she's saved all their lives, it's basically like swooning woman syndrome all of a sudden. It's like, <laughs> ooh, I'm going to give you a kiss. <laughs> I mean, the movie's ending. They got to give him a kiss, right? Yeah, I guess she's got to have that kiss. They could have just let it... I mean, they thought they were going to make sequels. They could have let that develop into the second one. But I whatever. feel like it would have been much better if that wasn't there. I, yeah. I just think it was too forced. and It was. It's too silly. They don't have to make it so formulaic. Exactly. Well, and especially considering, to your point, we get to the very end here. This movie doesn't actually have an end. The the, the last moment after they've, they're they're trying to escape this imploding planet, they've got the updated star maps that they took off the Proteus, which tell them how to get where they're trying to go. The last moment of the film is them putting the ship in the hyperdrive and launching themselves to those coordinates. So that's it. Like you have no idea where the movie's going to go from there, where the story, because the next part of it was supposed to be the sequel. So, um, yeah, so that, that, I guess that begs the question. Do you think they make it home? 
I my understanding, and this absolutely could have shifted if they had actually made the movie, is that the second part was supposed to start with them making it to what had been their destination, the Alpha Centauri or whatever it was called. Alpha Prime. Alpha Prime, yeah. That they were supposed to end up there after the start of the second film. Whether or not that would have stuck, I have no idea. I think it would have frankly would have made more sense for them to go back to Earth for the start of the next one. Because I mean the the ship's fucked up. People have died. They the the, the Smith sabotage and they still don't really know exactly what's wrong. The whole schedule of events for building that second gate has been screwed up. Like, and in real time, quote unquote, not accounting for their their jumps, they would have ended up back at Earth something like thirty six hours after they'd taken off. They wouldn't have even lost that much time. Damn. So yeah, it doesn't resupply. Yeah, just resupply, fix the ship, make sure nobody sabotages it this time, and try again. Like, yeah. yeah. That would have been an interesting sequel. Right? <laughs> try again. We, we won this time. Right? Or at least, I mean, I, if, if I'd been in charge and they were doing it, I would have started, maybe the first 35 minutes of the sequel would have been back on Earth. You could have jumped to the point where they were already done with everything, you know, and just preparing for the second launch. But, I don't know. Well, that is 1998's Lost in Space. Now, Steve, on any rating scale you want, how are you going to rate this movie? Ooh, on a scale of 1 to 10 interplanetary starships. It's actually a tougher choice than I thought. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give this movie... I'm going to give this movie a 5 out of 10. It's it. The movie got panned by critics, and mostly rightfully so. It's, it's incoherent in places. It jumps around too much. The script needed polishing. Some of the dialogue is outright bad. The Penny character was too vapid for someone who was supposed to be that intelligent. Judy character didn't get used almost at all. There was a lot of potential in the techie stuff Will was doing that they didn't use. And the story just didn't develop all that well. But at the same time, there is something sort of compelling about all of it. It is very adventurous. It does have a very big scale to it. I think the set and the prop design all looked really nice and really neat. Um, I think the tone of the film was mostly very right. I think this is a movie that was just let down by needing more polishing rather than being something that was entirely bad. I will also concede that I have such a strong nostalgia for the late 90s that just... It makes me happy thinking about the world of 1998, you know? And and otherwise, I might give this movie like a three and a half or a four instead of a five. But I also don't think... Relative to a lot of the other piss-poor sci-fi that was around during the late 90s, this one's really not that much worse than a lot of the rest of it. I'd say it's about average. So a five for me feels fitting. No, that's a good point, actually. You know? I'm going to give it four out of ten yeah. spider eggs. <laughs> uh, a lot of what you said is pretty accurate, I think. And this movie is at, it's at the same time boring and fun. Yeah, exactly. So it has this weird mix where, like, it's not that it shifts from boring to fun. The fun scenes are also boring. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very strange. Um, probably the only reason I gave it as high as I did is because of nostalgia for it. I used to watch this movie a lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was scientific. It's been burned into my mind. I I don't know why I used to watch. I used to watch some weird fucking movies. <laughs> you get weird obsessions when you're like an adolescent. You yeah. Know? yeah. I, I mean, you pretty much said it all. It, it's not great. The characters are pretty flat. Um, I guess some interesting things happen along the way. 
I'd say it's one of the worst time travel movies if you're just going to make a list of time travel movies. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as 90s sci-fi movies, I might put it mid-tier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's definitely not among the best. But you think about, com- for comparison, like Mission to Mars or Red Planet or, or or what was that one with Keanu Reeves about the asteroids? Uh, whatever it was called. Like, yeah, a lot of what else was coming out at that point was really not any better. So... Yeah. Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> you, got, you got William Hurt and Matt LeBlanc. Uh. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for listening. That has been Big Dumb Movie on 1998 Lost in Space. If you want to talk to us, you can write in. Email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. Suggest a movie. Maybe we'll get around to it. We have been putting off the few suggestions we have, but I'm looking to change that very soon. Leave us a positive rating on iTunes if you're feeling friendly. Give us a thumbs up if you're listening on YouTube. She feel a little sad to be done with this review, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> any any final words for the listener, Steve? Consume as much '90s media as you can. Somewhere in there, you'll find something you like. <laughs> Hopefully, they're our age and they can appreciate that. Right. Thank you all for listening. We love you. Good day. Good night.
one to kill a bad guy buys the beer.